Chapter Thirteen, Part Two: The Life of Abraham Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Giordano. The Life of Abraham Lincoln by Ward Hill Lehman. Chapter 13, Part 2. On the 3rd of December, 1839, Mr. Lincoln was admitted to practice in the Circuit Court of the United States, and on the same day, the names of Stephen A. Douglas, S. H. Treat, Schuyler Strong, and two other gentlemen were placed on the same roll. The little giant is always in sight. The first speech he delivered in the Supreme Court of the State was one the like of which will never be heard again, and must have led the judges to doubt the sanity of the new attorney. We give it in the form in which it seems to be authenticated by Judge Treat. Quote, A case being called for hearing in the court, Mr. Lincoln stated that he appeared for the appellant, and was ready to proceed with the argument. He then said, This is the first case I have ever had in this court, and I have therefore examined it with great care. As the court will perceive, by looking at the abstract of the record, the only question in the case is one of authority. I have not been able to find any authority sustaining my side of the case, but I have found several cases directly in point on the other side. I will now give these cases, and then submit the case. End quote. The testimony of all the lawyers, his contemporaries and rivals, is in the same direction. Quote, but Mr. Lincoln's love of justice and fair play, says Mr. Gillespie, was his predominating trait. I have often listened to him when I thought he would certainly state his case out of court. It was not in his nature to assume or to attempt to bolster up a false position. He would abandon case first. He did so in the case of Buckmaster for the use of Denham v. Beans and Arthur in our Supreme Court, in which I happened to be opposed to him. Another gentleman, less fastidious, took Mr. Lincoln's place and gained the case. End quote. In the Patterson trial, a case of murder which attained some celebrity, in Champaign County, Ficklin and Lamont prosecuted and Lincoln and Sweat defended. After hearing the testimony, Mr. Lincoln felt himself morally paralyzed, and said, quote, Sweat, the man is guilty. You defend him. I can't. End quote. They got a fee of five hundred or a thousand dollars, of which Mr. Lincoln declined to take a cent, on the ground that it justly belonged to Sweat, whose ardor, courage, and eloquence had saved the guilty man from justice. It was probably his deep sense of natural justice, his irresistible propensity to get at the equities of the matter in hand, that made him so utterly impatient of all arbitrary or technical rules. Of these he knew very little, less than an average student of six months. Quote, Hence, says Judge Davis, a child could make use of the simple and technical rules, 
the means and mode of getting at justice better than lincoln could End quote. Quote, in this respect says mr herndon i really think he was very deficient End quote. Sagamon County was originally in the first judicial circuit, but under the Constitution of 1848, and sundry changes in the Judiciary Acts, it became the Eighth Circuit. It was in 1848 that Judge Davis came on the bench for the first time. The circuit was a very large one, containing fourteen counties, and comprising the central portion of the state. Lincoln traveled all over it, first with Judge Treat, and then with Judge Davis twice every year, and was thus absent from Springfield and home nearly, if not quite, six months out of every twelve. Quote, In my opinion, says Judge Davis, Lincoln was as happy as he could be on this circuit, and happy in no other place. This was his place of enjoyment. As a general rule, of a Saturday evening, when all the lawyers would go home, the judge means those who were close enough to get there and back by the time their cases were called, and see their family and friends. Lincoln would refuse to go. End quote. Quote, it was on this circuit, we are told by an authority equally high, that he shown as a Nisi Prius lawyer. It was on this circuit Lincoln thought, spoke, and acted. It was on this circuit that the people met, greeted, and cheered on the man. It was on this circuit that he cracked his jokes, told his stories, made his money, and was happy as nowhere in the world beside. End quote. When, in 1857, Sagamon County was cut off from the Eighth Circuit by the act creating the Eighteenth, Mr. Lincoln would still continue with Judge Davis, first finishing his business in Sagamon. End quote. On his return from one of these long journeys, he found that Mrs. Lincoln had taken advantage of his absence, and, with the connivance and assistance of his neighbor, Gorley, had placed a second story and a new roof on his house. Approaching it for the first time after this rather startling alteration, and pretending not to recognize it, he called to a man on the street, quote, Stranger, can you tell me where Lincoln lives? He used to live here. End quote. When Mr. Lincoln first began to ride the circuit, he was too poor to own horse-flesh or vehicle, and was compelled to borrow from his friends. But in due time he became the proprietor of a horse, which he fed and groomed himself, and to which he was very much attached. On this animal he would set out from home, to be gone for weeks together, with no baggage but a pair of saddle-bags, containing a change of linen and an old cotton umbrella to shelter him from sun or rain. When he got a little more of the world's goods, he set up a one-horse buggy, a very sorry and shabby-looking affair, which he generally used when the weather promised to be bad. But the lawyers were always glad to see him, and the landlords hailed his coming with pleasure. Yet he was of one of those peculiar, gentle, uncomplaining men, whom those servants of the public, who keep hotels, would generally put off with the most indifferent accommodations. It was a very significant remark of a lawyer thoroughly acquainted with his habits and disposition that quote, Lincoln was never seated next the landlord at a crowded table, and never got a chicken liver or the best cut from the roast. End quote. If rooms were scarce, and one, two, three, or four gentlemen were required to lodge together, in order to accommodate some surly man who quote, stood upon his rights, 
end quote. Lincoln was sure to be one of the unfortunates. Yet he loved the life, and never went home without reluctance. From Mr. S. O. Parks of Lincoln, himself a most reputable lawyer, we have two or three anecdotes, which we give in his own language. Quote, I have often said that, for a man who was for the quarter of a century both a lawyer and a politician, he was the most honest man I ever knew. He was not only morally honest, but intellectually so. He could not reason falsely. If he attempted it, he failed. In politics he never would try to mislead. At the bar, when he thought he was wrong, he was the weakest lawyer I ever saw. You know this better than I do. But I will give you an example or two which occurred in this county and which you may not remember. A man was indicted for larceny. Lincoln, Young, and myself defended him. Lincoln was satisfied by the evidence that he was guilty, and ought to be convicted. He called Young and myself aside, and said, If you can say anything for the man, do it. I can't. If I attempt, the jury will see that I think he is guilty, and convict him, of course. The case was submitted by us to the jury without a word. The jury failed to agree, and before the next term the man died. Lincoln's honesty undoubtedly saved him from the penitentiary. In a closely contested civil suit, Lincoln had proved an account for his client, who was, though he did not know it at the time, a very slippery fellow. The opposing attorney then proved a receipt clearly covering the entire cause of action. By the time he was through, Lincoln was missing. The court sent for him to the hotel. Tell the judge, said he, that I can't come. My hands are dirty, and I came over to clean them. In the case of Harris and Jones vs. Buckles, Harris wanted Lincoln to assist you and myself. His answer was characteristic. Tell Harris it's no use to waste money on me in that case. He'll get beat. End quote. Mr. Lincoln was prone to adventures in which pigs were the other party. The reader has already enjoyed one from the pen of Miss Owen, and here is another, from an incorrigible humorist, a lawyer named J. H. Wickeser. Quote, in 1855, Mr. Lincoln and myself were traveling by buggy from Woodford County Court to Bloomington, and, in passing through a little grove, we suddenly heard the terrific squealing of a little pig nearby us. Quick as thought, Mr. Lincoln leaped out of the buggy, seized the club, pounced upon the old sow, and beat her lustily. She was in the act of eating one of her young ones. Thus he saved the pig, and then remarked, by jing the unnatural old brute shall not devour her own progeny this i think was his first proclamation of freedom End quote. but mr wickeser gives us another story which most happily illustrates the readiness of mr lincoln's wit quote, in eighteen fifty eight in the court at bloomington mr lincoln was engaged in a case of no great importance but the attorney on the other side mr s blank a young lawyer of fine abilities, now a judge of the Supreme Court of the State, was always very sensitive about being beaten, and in this case manifested unusual zeal and interest. The case lasted until late at night, when it was finally submitted to the jury. Mr. S. Blank spent a sleepless night in anxiety, and early next morning learned, to his great chagrin, 
that he had lost the case. Mr. Lincoln met him at the courthouse, and asked him what had become of his case. With lugubrious countenance and melancholy tone, Mr. S. said, It's gone to hell. Oh, well, replied Lincoln, then you'll see it again. End quote. Although the humble condition and disreputable character of some of his relations and connections were the subject of constant annoyance and most painful reflections, he never tried to shake them off, and never abandoned them when they needed his assistance. A son of his foster brother, John Johnston, was arrested in Blank County for stealing a watch. Mr. Lincoln went to the same town to address a mass meeting while the poor boy was in jail. He waited until the dusk of the evening, and then, in company with Mr. H. C. Whitney, visited the prison. Quote, Lincoln knew he was guilty, says Mr. Whitney, and was very deeply affected, more than I ever saw him. At the next term of the court, upon the state's attorney's consent, Lincoln and I went to the prosecution witnesses, and got them to come into open court, and state that they did not care to prosecute. End quote. The boy was released, and that evening, as the lawyers were leaving the town in their buggies, Mr. Lincoln was observed to get down from his, and walk back a short distance to a poor, distressed-looking young man who stood by the roadside. It was young Johnston. Mr. Lincoln engaged for a few moments apparently in earnest and nervous conversation with him, then giving him some money, and returning to his buggy, drove on. A thousand tales could be told of Mr. Lincoln's amusing tricks and eccentricities on these quiet rides from county to county, in company with judges and lawyers, and of his quaint sayings and curious doings at the courts in these western villages. But, much against our will, we are compelled to make selections, and present a few only, which rest upon the most undoubted authority. It is well known that he used to carry with him, on what Mr. Stewart calls, quote, the tramp around the circuit, end quote ordinary school-books, from Euclid down to an English grammar, and study them as he rode along, or at intervals of leisure in the towns where he stopped. He supplemented these with a copy of Shakespeare, got much of it by rote, and recited long passages from it to any chance companion by the way. He was intensely fond of cutting wood with an axe, and he was often seen to jump from his buggy, seize an axe out of the hands of a roadside chopper, take his place on the log in the most approved fashion, and, with his tremendous long strokes, cut it in two before the man could recover from his surprise. It was this free life that charmed him, and reconciled him to existence. Here he forgot the past, with all its cruelties and mortifications. Here were no domestic afflictions to vex his weary spirit, and to try his magnanimous heart. Quote, after he returned from Congress, says Judge Davis, and had lost his practice, Goodrich of Chicago proposed to him to open a law office in Chicago, and go into partnership with him. Goodrich had an extensive practice there. Lincoln refused to accept, and gave as a reason that he tended to consumption, that, if he went to Chicago, he would have to sit down and study hard, and it would kill him, that he would rather go around the circuit, the Eighth Judicial Circuit, than to sit down and die in Chicago. End quote. In the summer of 1857, at a camp meeting in Mason County, one Metzgar was most brutally murdered. The affray took place about half a mile from the place of worship, 
near some wagons loaded with liquors and provisions. Two men, James H. Norris and William D. Armstrong, were indicted for the crime. Norris was tried in Mason County, convicted of manslaughter, and sentenced to the penitentiary for the term of eight years. But Armstrong, the popular feeling being very high against him in Mason, quote, took a change of venue to Cass County, end quote, and was there tried at Beardstown in the spring of 1858. Hitherto Armstrong had had the services of two able counselors, but now their efforts were supplemented by those of a most determined and zealous volunteer. Armstrong was the son of Jack and Hannah Armstrong of New Salem, the child whom Mr. Lincoln had rocked in the cradle, while Mrs. Armstrong attended to other household duties. His life was now in imminent peril. He seemed clearly guilty, and, if he was to be saved, it must be by the interposition of some power which could deface that fatal record in the Norris trial, refute the senses of witnesses, and make a jury forget themselves and their oaths. Old Hannah had one friend whom she devoutly believed could accomplish this. She wrote to Mr. Lincoln, and he replied that he would defend the boy. She says she has lost his letter. Afterward she visited him at Springfield, and prepared him for the event as well as she could, with an understanding weakened by a long strain of severe and almost hopeless reflection. When the trial came on, Mr. Lincoln appeared for the defense. His colleague, Mr. Walker, had possessed him of the record in the Norris case, and, upon close and anxious examination, he was satisfied that the witnesses could, by a well-sustained and judicious cross-examination, be made to contradict each other in some important particulars. Mr. Walker handled the victims of this friendly design, while Mr. Lincoln sat by and suggested questions. Nevertheless, to the unskilled mind, the testimony seemed to be absolutely conclusive against the prisoner, and every word of it fell like a new sentence of death. Norris had beaten the murdered man with the club from behind, while Armstrong had pounded him in the face with a slung shot deliberately prepared for the occasion, and, according to the medical men, either would have been fatal without the other. But the witness, whose testimony bore hardest upon Armstrong, swore that the crime was committed about eleven o'clock at night, that he saw the blows struck by the light of a moon nearly full, and standing in the heavens about where the sun would stand at ten o'clock in the morning, it is easy to pervert and even to destroy evidence like this. And here Mr. Lincoln saw an opportunity which nobody had dreamed of on the Norris trial. He handed to an officer of the court an almanac, and told him to give it back to him when he should call for it in presence of the jury. It was an almanac of the year previous to the murder. Quote, Mr. Lincoln, says Mr. Walker, made the closing argument for the defense. At first he spoke slowly and carefully reviewed the whole testimony, picked it all to pieces, and showed that the man had not received his wounds at the place or time named by the witnesses, but afterwards and at the hands of someone else. End quote. Quote, the evidence bore heavily upon his client, says Mr. Shaw, one of the counsel for the prosecution. There were many witnesses and each one seemed to add one more cord that seemed to bind him down, until Mr. Lincoln was something in the situation of Gulliver after his first sleep in Lilliput. But, when he came to talk to the jury, that was always his forte, he resembled Gulliver again. 
he skillfully untied here and there a knot, and loosened here and there a peg, until, fairly getting warmed up, he raised himself in his full power, and shook the arguments of his opponents from him as if they were cobwebs. End quote. In due time he called for the almanac, and easily proved by it that, at the time the main witness declared the moon was shining in great splendor, there was, in fact, no moon at all, but black darkness over the whole scene. In the roar of laughter and undisguised astonishment succeeding this apparent demonstration, court, jury, and counsel forgot to examine that seemingly conclusive almanac, and let it pass without a question concerning its genuineness. Footnote. Mr. E. J. Loomis, assistant in charge of the Nautical Almanac Office, Washington, D.C., under date of August 1, 1871, says, referring to the Nautical Almanac for 1857, I find that, between the hours of 10 and 11 o'clock on the night of the 29th of August, 1857, the moon was within one hour of setting. The computed time of its setting on that first night is 11 hours, 57 minutes, three minutes before midnight. The moon was only two days past its first quarter. It could hardly be mistaken for nearly full. In the case of the People vs. Armstrong, I was assisting prosecuting counsel. The prevailing belief at that time, and I may also say it at the present, in Cass County, was as follows. Quote, Mr. Lincoln, previous to the trial, handed an almanac of the year previous to the murder to an officer of the court, stating that he might call for one during the trial, and, if he did, to send him that one. An important witness for the people had fixed the time of their murder to be in the night near a camp meeting, that the moon was about in the same place that the sun would be at ten o'clock in the morning, and was nearly full, therefore he could see plainly, etc. At the proper time, Mr. Lincoln called to the officer for an almanac, and the one prepared for the occasion was shown by Mr. Lincoln, he reading from it at the time referred to by the witness. The moon had already set. Then in the roar of laughter the jury and opposing counsel forgot to look at the date. Mr. Carter, a lawyer of the city, Beardstown, who was present at, but not engaged in, the Armstrong case, says he is satisfied that the almanac was of the years previous, and thinks he examined it at the time. This was the general impression in the courtroom. I have called on the sheriff, who officiated at that time, James A. Dick, who says that he saw a Gowdy's almanac lying upon Mr. Lincoln's table during the trial, and that Mr. Lincoln took it out of his own pocket. Mr. Dick does not know the date of it. I have seen several of the petty jurymen who sat upon the case, who only recollect that the almanac floored the witness. But one of the jurymen, the foreman, Mr. Milton Logan, says that it was the one for the year of the murder, and no trick about it, that he is willing to make an affidavit that he examined it as to date, and that it was an almanac of the year of the murder. My own opinion is that when an almanac was called for by Mr. Lincoln, two were brought, one of the year of the murder and one of the year previous, that Mr. Lincoln was entirely innocent of any deception in the matter. I the more think this, from the fact that Armstrong was not cleared by any want of testimony against him, but by the irresistible appeal of Mr. Lincoln in his favor. End quote. Henry Shaw End of footnote 
in conclusion mr lincoln drew a touching picture of jack armstrong whose gentle spirit alas had gone to that place of coronation for the meek and hannah the sweet-faced old lady with the silver locks welcoming to their humble cabin a strange and penniless boy to whom jack with that christian benevolence which distinguished him through life became as a father and the guileless hannah even more than a mother the boy he said stood before them pleading for the life of his benefactor's son the staff of the widow's declining years Quote, the last fifteen minutes of his speech his colleague declares was as eloquent as i ever heard and such the power and earnestness with which he spoke to that jury that all sat as if entranced and when he was through found relief in a gush of tears End quote. Quote, he took the jury by storm says one of the prosecutors there were tears in mr lincoln's eyes while he spoke but they were genuine his sympathies were fully enlisted in favor of the young man and his terrible sincerity could not help but arouse the same passion in the jury i have said a hundred times that it was lincoln's speech that saved the criminal from the gallows in the language of hannah who sat by enchanted quote, he told the stories about our first acquaintance what i did for him and how i did it and she thinks it was truly eloquent as to the trial continues hannah lincoln said to me hannah your son will be cleared before sundown he and the other lawyers addressed the jury and closed the case i went down at thompson's pasture stater came to me and told me soon that my son was cleared and a free man i went up to the courthouse the jury shook hands with me and so did the court so did lincoln we were all affected and tears streamed down lincoln's eyes he then remarked to me hannah what did i tell you i pray to god that william may be a good boy hereafter that this lesson may prove in the end a good lesson to him and to all after the trial was over lincoln came down to where i was in beardstown i asked him what he charged me told him i was poor he said why hannah i shan't charge you a cent never anything i can do for you i will do for you willing and freely without charges he wrote to me about some land which some men were trying to get from me and said hannah they can't take your land let them try it in the circuit court and then you appeal it bring it to the supreme court and i and herndon will attend to it for nothing End quote. this boy william enlisted in the union army but in eighteen sixty three hannah concluded that she wanted him she does not say that william was laboring under any disability or that he had any legal right to his discharge she merely wanted him and wrote mr lincoln to that effect he replied promptly by telegraph september eighteen sixty three mrs hannah armstrong i have just ordered the discharge of your boy william as you say now at louisville kentucky a lincoln for many years mr lincoln was the attorney of the illinois central railway company and having rendered in some recent causes most important and laborious services he presented a bill for in eighteen fifty seven for five thousand dollars he pressed for his money and was referred to some under official who was charged with that class of business mr lincoln would probably have modified his bill which seemed exorbitant as charges went among country lawyers but the company treated him with such rude insolence that he contented himself with a formal demand and then immediately instituted suit on the claim 
the case was tried at Bloomington before Judge Davis, and, upon affidavits of N. B. Budd, O. H. Browning, S. T. Logan, and Archie Williams respecting the value of the services, was decided in favor of the plaintiff, and judgment given for five thousand dollars. This was much more money than Mr. Lincoln had ever had at one time. In the summer of 1859, Mr. Lincoln went to Cincinnati to argue the celebrated McCormick reaping machine case. Mr. Edwin M. Stanton, whom he never saw before, was one of his colleagues, and the leading counsel in the case, and although the other gentlemen engaged received him with proper respect, Mr. Stanton treated him with such marked and habitual discourtesy that he was compelled to withdraw from the case. When he reached home, he said that he had, quote, never been so brutally treated as by that man Stanton, end quote, and the facts justified the statement. End of chapter 13, part 2. Recording by Greg Giordano, Newport Ritchie, Florida.